This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Journalism is under siege. Nearly half of Americans say they have hardly any faith in the news media. Yet somehow, many high school students are excited about the profession. 1,300 of them gathered at Colorado State University the other day for an annual conference known as J-Day. And we were there to hear about the stories they cover, from sports to teen sex. Let's start with the paper at Grand Junction High School, the Orange and Black, which has taken on the issue of teen suicide after a student killed himself during the first week of school last year. Senior Shannon Clark is the paper's co-editor, and her faculty advisor is Sutton Casey. Their coverage started with a meeting of school officials. Advisor Sutton Casey described it. Our school principal had actually had experience with this situation at another school. And so we had a meeting with all of the editors on the staff, our school psychologist, and our school principal. The school psychologist shared some sobering information with us about student suicide statistics and how kids are triggered or how it affects a larger population of kids. We have, in Mesa County, an unusually high suicide rate, and we knew that there were many factors to be considered. Do you remember how this suicide hit you, Shannon? Yes, so I personally knew the boy who killed himself because I was friends with his sisters when I was younger. So that's interesting. Here you are as a reporter, but you were also connected to the story. Mm -hmm. What thoughts did you have about covering something that you were affected by? Um, It was definitely hard to cover. I wasn't as close with him as some other kids were, and they were a lot more affected than I was, but I was still like shook up about it and everything that happened. So when I was approached for the story... It was very hard to write because you had to be very careful about what you would write and how it would come off to other students who were like his family members and his best friends. Because in, in professional journalism, for sure, if you have too much of a connection to a story, you have to recuse yourself or certainly be transparent about your connection. Mm-hmm. And it's not a, a huge community at Grand Junction High School. I imagine lots of people were affected who were going to be covering this story. On the staff, we had several of his very best friends. So some of the editors were profoundly affected, really in a great deal of pain. So when we had the meeting, we were challenged to decide how to respond. And as a group, we decided how we would respond. And And how was that? What was the first story or message you wanted to hit? Um, We determined that October... September. September, rather, was Suicide Awareness Month. And so we wrote the story in that vein, that it was going, not going to mention his name, not going to mention the specific incident, but provide students with information about mental health issues and places that they could get assistance. You didn't name the young man who killed himself. Do you remember the discussions around that, Shannon? Yes. So it's a lot different when somebody commits suicide on how you have to approach the subject versus if somebody dies naturally. With the school psychologist, when we talked to him, he told us about like this butterfly effect, which is where students who are mentally ill or have depression or struggling in some way, struggling towards suicide. uh, If they see a student being shown in like the light and being like almost famous or they got popular and now they have all these people like look at how great this person was. Students who are mentally ill can take that another way and say, if I commit suicide, then this can happen to me. 
also, and I could become sort of famous. So that was a balance you had to strike to both cover the issue at your school, but not cover it in such a way that might persuade more students to take the same action. That's a huge responsibility. What did you learn about suicide as you reported on it? I learned a lot about how mental health affects teenagers and how common it is for teenagers because, you know, there's a huge stigma, especially in high schools, around talking about issues like that. So we wanted to show students that they're not alone. So Sutton, just a month or so later, another student took his own life, this time in the school parking lot. It, it, it just was so abrupt. In, so many students at our school were in the parking lot. It was after school. So there were many, many kids that were just so um, emotional. Just throughout the school year, we had to deal with how do we honor the relationships that we had with, with these students? How do we honor the feeling of other students who had experienced suicide? There were maybe 10 kids whose parents committed suicide for a semester. The district started a hashtag campaign on Twitter. So the hashtag was what adults should know, and they started that to have students go on social media, hashtag that at the district to tell adults what they wanted to know, because a lot of kids were just outraged that it seemed like the district wasn't doing anything. Well, Sutton, this is an odd position to be in. You're both representing the student journalists who may have a beef with the district, but you're also an employee of the district. I feel like the district was very proud, and we actually got a lot of compliments on the stories that Shannon wrote. So I have not had any negative pushback from our district. How did you separate your sort of emotional self from your journalistic self? That was kind of hard. Um, That was something I was definitely dealing with the whole time, with I can't put my personal emotions into this, but what I did find was instead of doing my own emotions, I told it through the students' emotions and how they were dealing with it. Were there instances of misinformation, what might be called fake news, rumors? Oh, for sure. There was definitely a lot of rumors, mainly from people who were just angry or upset. Rumors like what? Um, That like the district didn't care about students, that they didn't have any support systems, which we did. It's just a lot of students didn't know about them. That was what we wanted to focus on. That was a piece of misinformation you wanted to combat with Mm -hmm. information. Yes, with information about the resources. What was social media doing during this time? I'm thinking Twitter and Facebook would have been awfully interesting places. Um, It was very interesting with the what adults should know hashtag. That's where a lot of kids were spreading fake news because they needed somebody to be angry at. They needed an outlet. I will admit that I didn't follow a lot of um, social media at the time because the second boy I knew very well and I knew his family very well and I was having a hard time dealing with the grief that they were embroiled in and getting on with the business of school. So I stayed very far away from that. You've written a lot about the stress that parents put on kids yeah, to get straight A's, to be a good kid, mm-hmm. and that that can uh, stress someone's mental health. Yeah, but we don't want to just put all the blame on one person. and On mom or dad. Yeah, on mom <laughs> or dad, because it's not mom or dad's fault for everything that happens. You know, A lot of things with mental illnesses are just like chemical imbalances and the science behind that. But there are aspects within our school 
and students' lives that affect it. Shannon, you are a senior. Are you going to be a journalist? Yes, that's what I plan on pursuing in college. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you for having us. Shannon Clark is a senior at Grand Junction High School, and her advisor on the Orange and Black newspaper is Sutton Casey. We talked about their coverage of suicide. They joined me on stage at J-Day, Journalism Day, earlier this month, a gathering of 1,300 high school journalists. I wanted to hear from those in our audience why they are getting into journalism when trust is so low. I was also curious about what other stories they cover. Sam Norris is a freshman at Eagle Crest High School in Centennial. He hopes to join the yearbook staff next year, and he says he's driven by truth. You know, like you were talking about fake news and how rumors can spread, but I really like journalism because it gives me an opportunity to just kind of see everything in a story. I really want to be able to cover uh, racism. It's like something I'm really passionate about solving. And uh, also suicide because my family has experienced it firsthand a lot in the past, so it'd be good. Why racism? Tell me about that. I I think just because I see it so much every day and uh, so much in school, it's something I'm really, really passionate about, and I feel like journalism is a good way for me to help put an end to it in some aspect. Do you think your school is segregated? In other words, do white students hang out with white students? Do Hispanic students hang out with Hispanic students? What do you see? I mean, somewhat. It's kind of a mixture of that and, you know, everybody blending, but... Racism is still heavy, and it's not just in my school. It's everywhere today. So, Hi, my name is Connor Lyford. Um, I am a senior at Regis Jesuit High School, and I am the head editor in charge of Elevate Magazine. And why do you want to be a journalist? I want to be a journalist because right now there are probably 40 or 50 students sitting in this theater that could all come up on stage and tell you about their lives, and you would hear a story that you've never heard before. I believe that journalism is about telling stories and that there's always something out there to be told. It's important to stay on top of humanity, not just um, things that are going on, say hurricanes and all that, but the humanity within those disasters and the stories that people have to tell. It sounds like you think it's a way to walk in other people's shoes. It is a way to walk in other people's shoes or even trade shoes. Um, I feel like when I'm interviewing someone, I have to trade places with them um, and be able to feel what they're feeling. It gives me a greater understanding of diversity. It gives me a greater understanding of a world that I'm not a part of. Hi. 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 My name is Vivi Denitis. I'm a senior at Arapahoe High School for the Arapahoe Herald. I want to be a journalist, or I am a journalist, because I want people to read our articles and see the passion that we have for sharing information. I do that through design. I'm the graphic and design editor, and so I feel like it's important for our designs to be captivating and interesting. Even I find it hard to read our magazine if it's just, like, words on a page. All text. Yeah. and so. Do you um, think people's attention spans are getting shorter? Very much so. Um, I even find that myself, like with the Snapchat news, like there's Snapchat news now. I won't read an article that's like more than a few swipes long. Like, and so I think it's really important that we put more attention on our design aspects. And I think it's important to address like controversial ideas and stuff like that too. What are some of the stories you're covering? 
Um, last year, my famous article for our school was on when teens know they are able to have sex. How, how did you uh, report that story? Who did you hear from? I tried getting interviews with um, Planned Parenthood and like our health centers, but I was running behind and I wasn't able to get an interview with them on time. So I ended up interviewing one of our health teachers And that was really difficult because our district really promotes abstinence. Like, we definitely have sex education, but it was, we push for abstinence in our district. So it was really hard to get quotes out of him that were sex positive. Um, Though it can be sex positive to say wait and have it later, I suppose. Yes, but it was also hard to, like, get quotes out of him saying, like, if teenagers are, like, ready to have sex, like, what routes or facets should they take for that? Um, So do you think you accurately reflected that teacher's views in the article? Yes. He talked a lot about how teenagers aren't ready because of their developing minds, and so I definitely made that a point in my article. What did students tell you? Um, I didn't have a lot of students come up to me personally because a lot of times people forget to read the byline. (laughs) You're learning a lot about deadlines, about reader behavior, and about how sometimes inglorious it can be to be a journalist. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think one of the biggest regrets of that article is on my page I wrote a checklist of like, this is the things that you need to know if you are ready to have sex. It was kind of large. It was like a fourth of the page, and I wish I would have made that smaller because it made the article seem more like encouraging people rather than helping them through the decision-making process. So this was an example where the graphic design might have conveyed a different message than you wanted to journalistically. Yes. I wanted them to really self-reflect on their decisions and say, am I ready for this? Thank you so much. Thank you. We heard there from Vivi Dinitis, a senior at Arapahoe High School in Littleton, Connor Lyford, a senior at Regis, Jesuit in Aurora, and Sam Norris, a freshman at Eagle Crest High in Centennial. They all attended Journalism Day earlier this month in Fort Collins. So those young people we just heard from are super plugged in. When we come back, kids in the Denver area are encouraging their friends to unplug for a month. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Before the break, we heard how some young journalists in Grand Junction covered the issue of suicide at their high school. In the Denver area, a series of suicides earlier this year led two students to start Offline October. They were concerned about the isolating and ostracizing effects of social media. Carson McLeod is a junior at Heritage High School in Littleton. He spoke with my colleague Joanne Allen and shared a video he made to promote Offline October. The average teenager spends more than four hours on their phone each day. That means checking your phone more than 157 times, sending out more than 208 Snapchats, and spending more than 34 minutes on Instagram per day. We're doing this in an effort to have people realize the importance of uh, human relationships and kind of the happiness that can come from uh, direct face-to-face human interaction. We saw that social media um, was becoming a dictating force in people's lives, especially in our high school and a couple high schools around our district that had some recent tragedies that happened. And so we're really hoping from this challenge that people are going to maintain stronger friendships 
and uh, begin to develop better face-to-face communication skills throughout high school and just become, like, happier overall. You guys are pretty young. How'd you get so smart? Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> I think one of the biggest factors was uh, one of my friends, Chloe, she just one night, she said enough is enough with these tragedies. Like, we have to do something about this. So she went and talked to her mom about how we can help. And she didn't want to so much create a program, but rather kind of an all-inclusive thing where you you could partake if you wanted to. And it, it wasn't that hard. It was just one thing to give up. and But there were a lot of benefits to it still. Um, and so we kind of all just hopped on board right when she started talking to us about it because we kind of have a, a close-knit group of us in our student government um, at our school. The website is asking kids to pledge to participate. What has been the response? The response has actually been really great. So um, we've gotten about 16, over 1,600 pledges so far. Um, we're in two, uh, 240 schools around uh, 26 states. We're in seven countries, I think eight as of a couple days ago. Sometimes social media for teens can be a cry for help. Are you at all concerned about that form of communication shutting down for someone who really needs to communicate? That could be a problem for some people, but the bigger issue that we see is that people on social media and uh, different platforms like that are posting their perfect life out for everybody to see. And so if kids start to see that, then they kind of start to judge themselves inwardly and say, oh, my life isn't that perfect. And so um, that's where problems can get started. The reason for Offline October is kind of to get away from that and, and teach kids that there's other outlets to find help in other people and in your friends um, that's not social media and that you don't have to broadcast it to the whole world. But still, face-to-face interactions are really important in like overall happiness and just creating better relationships that are real. So, Will the project go beyond October? We're talking about that right now. I think a few of us are really enjoying this month, um, not having so many distractions with Snapchat and Instagram and things like that. A couple of us think we might go into November um, just because of the way that our October has been going. We're kind of inviting people to keep going if they want to because it's, if it's really affecting your life and having a really positive impact on uh, your life and the relationships that you're having, just a great thing, so you should keep on going with that. So, But, yeah, it should be good. Will you have a hard time eventually going back? I mean, you, you're now so used to not using social media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be difficult. I think I think there's been um, kind of a tolerance that's been taught throughout October. So before October, you kind of have just complete and utter control by social media, and it's it's a really big distraction in your life, and then just completely cutting it off in October um, kind of helps you realize how much you don't really need it in your life. I think there could be a little bit of a setback in November if you start it up again and then get sucked back into it. But then I think there might be a little bit more toughness in kids to not get so sucked into social media anymore and just realize that it's not completely necessary. So it's a fun thing to have, but you don't really need it because it's kind of a distraction. So, Did any of you guys get a backlash from schoolmates who didn't want to join or made fun of you? Or are you all now the cool kids at school? We thought that kids would just kind of say, oh, no, we're not going to give up social media. We like it too much. We like Snapchat streaks and all that. But actually, the response was really great within our school and a lot of other schools that are close to us. The couple of kids who uh, were saying, oh, I can't do that. Like, I need to have my Snapchat streaks and all that. 
they really were kind of the outsiders in it because so many people were partaking in it um, that it was really great to just see everybody come together and really want to do this. So, Snapchat streaks. Yeah, it's kind of on Snapchat when you Snapchat somebody consecutively for a certain amount of days, and a lot of people don't want to give that up and break their Snapchat streak, so they have a little number by their name if you've been Snapchatting them for like 10 days or something like that. Some kids have over 300 days with that over a year. It's pretty crazy, and kids get pretty crazy with how many Snapchat streaks they have, so it's it's pretty dictating force in the Snapchat world. Is that why Snapchat has become the preferred platform of many U.S. teens, is it, or, or is there some other reason that it surpasses Instagram and Facebook and Twitter? Um, I think Snapchat streaks could have could have an effect on that. Um, also, the stories that they have, you can post a story um, that'll stay on there for 24 hours, I think, um, and that's where kids really uh, kind of post their perfect life. So you you could take a really long and hard drive up up a mountain and see a sunset and only take a Snapchat of the sunset and not really have anything else besides that. And so that's where, like, the perfect life comes in, where kids are just posting their perfect life on um, their Snapchat stories, which could affect other kids. Carson, have you or do you know of anyone who's had a really bad experience on social media? I haven't really heard so much of, like, the cyberbullying sense or anything like that um, in recent times, but more of just uh, seeing somebody else's life and having an inward judgment on yourself because uh, your life isn't as perfect as theirs is on Instagram. So nobody in particular, um, but just kind of overarching stories. That is Carson McLeod. He's a junior at Heritage High School in Littleton, where he and some friends launched Offline October, encouraging kids to get off social media for the month. It's not every day an advertising agency approaches a poet and says, write something for us. But that's the call David Mason got. He's the state's former poet laureate, and he was asked to write a piece for a tourism ad. Mason shared it with us. It is simply titled Colorado. If gravity is love of earth, the mountains teach us how to fly and bring us back as rivers flow. You never need to wonder why. The wild will take your breath away. That's how it is in Colorado. I love her dreaming ranges, marmot rocks and columbine. I love the rush of mountain air, snow pluming off the peaks and top knots of the pines, the quiet everywhere. Her great rivers get up and grow. They carry the topsoil of the soul to the primal ocean far below. I love the bluebird and the whiskey jack, the black bear and the antelope, the cattle drive, the buffalo. I love the canyons of the ancient ones. Maybe they vanished. Maybe they've never gone. Remember them among their dwellings, pinion cliff and watchful crow, the painted hands and animals, coyotes, canny, covert, lope. The mesas and the grasslands, the Spanish names, the Ute, Cheyenne, Arapaho, the fancy dancer, Indian flute, the story waiting to be told as old, as new, as now, as Colorado. 
I love the switchback trail, the wide brim shading a rancher's eyes, the cat you never see that sees you under the bluest ever skies. Step out on a dare and see you've come here for the freedom, just like me. To camp above 10,000 feet is to breathe the air of gods and drink with rainbow trout. Some come out west to beat the odds and find out that the sky's the limit. Some simply stare. No end to it. The way you can love a land and quite a few of the people in it. Give me the sage in sunlight, warm even in winter. Give me the moonlit snow. Give me the book cliffs and the farms, the wild flowers of Colorado. David Mason reading his poem, Colorado. And we'll be right back with a new model for higher education that sees the student more as a customer. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When you ask University President Becky Takeda Tinker what sorts of institutions she admires, she's not likely to say Harvard or Princeton, but Southwest Airlines and Amazon. Takeda Tinker leads Colorado State University Global Campus, an entirely online school that she admits isn't for everyone. She has a new book about what she calls a crisis in higher education and about a model she says works for students, schools, and America. Sounds like a big promise. Hi, Becky. Welcome to the program. (laughs) Thank you. You point to a few disturbing trends in higher ed. More people who go to college but don't get a degree, rising student debt, and a growing perception that a college education just isn't worth it. And it's really against that backdrop that you say you have modeled your school after Amazon or Southwest Airlines. What do you mean by that? I mean that we actually look at where we're trying to get to, student graduation, completion of certificate programs as the goal. And we will innovate and find our way, not against peers, but against what works with our student body, looking at the data on a constant basis to see what is working towards moving them to not only completion of those academic goals, but to workplace success. Okay, so this is both about finishing and about landing a job, is what I hear. That is correct. Now, those strike me as goals that any university would embrace. That doesn't sound uh, earth-shattering to me. Mm -hmm. We actually measure our way there and measure our way after students uh, completed their certificate program or their degree, to understand where they are really in the workplace. Has their salary increased? Have they been able to switch careers? Are they satisfied with the return on investment of their higher education? And then what kind of an adjustment would you make if they said, no, I'm not satisfied, or I haven't landed a lucrative job? We actually do look at that kind of data as well, and we actually talk with students. So if, in fact, a student has contacted me and said they haven't found a job, we actually will meet with them. We have career coaches, but I will meet with them. The provost will meet. We will deconstruct how they ended up where they are and start with the beginning of what are they most interested in, what are they passionate in, and how do we apply what they've learned towards an actual job that pays a living wage. But what's an example of how you've changed your approach at CSU Global to mirror perhaps a trend you were seeing among students? Mm-hmm. 
We um, saw that students in our one of our degree programs, it was a too general of a degree program, applied social science. Um, as a bachelor degree, it was one of those very early programs and not really focused, right? So applied social science. I'm not science. even sure what it really means, <laughs> applied social science. Okay. It's a, almost that liberal arts type of degree where it's this really broad array of information, which can be super helpful if you're an established professional and maybe you just need to finish your bachelor degree and you haven't done that. But when we looked at where students were in that degree program post-graduation and what their challenges were, that they weren't finding really uh, direct jobs with living wages. And so we actually now really look at those students who want to be in that degree program and we question them quite heavily before we put them in there. Otherwise, we look at information technology, healthcare, project management, something that both engages them but can help them actually be employed uh, in really high-need areas in the industry. So really directing them to something a bit more specific, uh, as you say, uh, investigating whether they're the right fit. I'll say that CSU Global opened in 2007. It's unique. It's entirely online. It is a nonprofit state institution, but as I understand, it doesn't get any money from state government. You say you haven't raised tuition in something like six years. We're in our sixth year, and we're forecasted uh, to keep the tuition the same for next year. We are always looking at ways to be more efficient internally so that we don't let the administrative bloat that can sometimes happen with all organizations, just not higher ed, um, so that we are really focused um, with our funds and investing in areas that will help our students get to their goals and also be then very successful once they're out from and beyond us. CSU Global has students from all 50 states and 54 countries. I do want to say that at one point it was at risk of closing. This is during the recession. And you write about stepping in to save CSU Global. Did you come to this, this vision that's more like a Southwest or an Amazon less because you think it's the next great thing in higher education and more because you had to keep the door is open, virtually speaking. That would be a combination of both, to be quite honest. You've got to have a market for any type of service, and particularly in today's world where we know that students and individuals, uh, younger generations, are very much looking for what they're looking for. They're not just going to buy into something because they've been told that this is what they need to do. And so to be able to serve a, a market that hadn't been served prior, when we think of our average age of our students, 35 years old. Wow. So really different needs. And so to you, it had to be created really differently with the thought in mind is what is going to help these students get to their goal line academically and professionally. And there aren't really very many models. Right now, 75% of the students in the U.S. are non-traditional. But that's really flipped from when Global first started back, we opened our doors to students in 2008. When you say are not traditional, you mean not of a traditional age? And what else? They don't live on campus. Uh They uh, do not go to school full time. They actually have jobs. They're juggling family responsibilities. And they are working mostly and inside of the community. Do you get accused, uh, Becky Takeda Tinker of CSU Global, of, of somehow being crass or too commercial in contrast to the sort of traditional liberal, liberal arts education? 
We are very focused on our non-traditional learners and what they come to us for. So we talk about our brand promise, um, high-quality, affordable, career-relevant education. That is our brand promise. And so we look to help ensure that students know about us, whether or not they want to come, whether online and career-relevant, very highly career-focused education is what they want. How, how does That's the C- up to them. How does the CSU system look at you? And and how do they um, react to the, the kind of language I'm hearing from you, which in a way is very corporate or marketing, you know? The system understands that we serve a unique population that our other two campuses don't necessarily. Um, CSU in Fort, in Fort Collins is a research land-grant in- institution, and they serve very traditional students who live on campus, work um mostly go to school full-time, and then CSU Pueblo, which is our Hispanic-serving institution, again, serving them mostly traditional students, not students that range from 19, 18, up to 65. We're speaking with Becky Takeda-Tinker, who has written Impacting the Future of Higher Education, Insight into a New Model that Works for Students, Academic Institutions, and America. So, So let me... Uh, transition to whether what you've learned um, as an online school could benefit bricks and mortar institutions. Absolutely. You know, online is a delivery mechanism because we serve non-traditional students who are mostly working, that they need flexibility. They need um, this access where they can get online at 10 o'clock at night or on weekends and actually work on their schoolwork. So online facilitates that success. But being completely online, we are very technology-driven, so we're always looking at efficiency. We are tracking data at every level on uh, our work with students and what is actually helping them achieve the designated learning outcomes or helping them increase critical thinking, reading, writing skills. We're always measuring that. Then we're measuring and sending out surveys constantly to employers of our students and of our alumni, of our students themselves, of our faculty. Employers is interesting. What are you asking them Mm -hmm. about your graduates? Yeah, we ask them about the learning outcomes for the programs that the students have um, succeeded in or or completed. And we're we're actually asking them satisfaction levels of does the student understand, let's say it's accounting, you know, the principles of accounting in, in an appropriate way. And then we're also asking them the soft skills. Critical thinking, decision-making, working in teams, leading teams, working with diverse individuals. This is something you say, then, that more traditional schools could be doing. Oh, absolutely. And I think that some maybe do. CSU Global, uh, coming up the way that we have, um, and because we are so different, has always shared its data very openly. So we are always looking. It's not always perfect, but we're always working to get better. Where Where do you fall short? Mm-hmm. So on our last employer survey, we looked at areas of leadership and working with diversity. And those areas were slightly below. So in general, all the employers ranked us 90% and above in terms of highly satisfied or very satisfied. And those two areas were in the high 80s. So not bad, but we could absolutely do better in all areas. So in teaching leadership, and what do you mean by diversity? Just in having a diverse enough population of students? Exactly. Well, no. We came to, after we convened a group of employers to understand why, in fact, our rate, our um, ratings were not as strong as they were in the other areas. There was um, 
really a lot of confusion around what we meant by diversity. So this next year that we are running actually breaks it down so that it's a lot more clear on is it working with people that are different or is it um, because they don't understand how to, they don't have the skills, what whatever that is, so that we have a better understanding when of we ask that question. Potentially working with a diverse customer base or something that, like that. Right. That can, would be very different than working with a diverse group of colleagues or peers, oh. right? And so that's where we found confusion. How do your graduation rates compare? Mm-hmm. Um, against uh, uh, the national norm of, I believe it's 27% by Degree Matters, which is a organiz- research organization, ours right now rank at 69% six-year graduation rates, which then is over more than double the, the industry standard. Back to the crisis you see in higher ed, why do you think the value proposition seems to be going down in people's minds about higher ed? Because so many jobs require a a degree, and yet there's a perception that college isn't worth it. I think the last recession, we believe, had a lot to do with that. You had a lot of college graduates unemployed without the skills necessary to find work at that time or to be able to jump quickly in. What we understand is that people need plug-and-play skills. And coming out of the recession, that's even more important, that they have a very defined skill set. They can then learn once they're on the job, but they really need to come in and be able to contribute immediately. That's a good way to put it. Plug and play in many ways. Graduating mm-hmm. and immediately being able to plug into a workplace. Correct. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Becky, it's been a pleasure. Yes, nice to see you. Becky Takeda Tinker is president of Colorado State University Global Campus, and her new book is Impacting the Future of Higher Education. When we come back, why the colonial era spawned so many scary stories. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. For Halloween, let's hear some horror stories. Graham Davis is a fiction writer who lives in Lafayette, and he has edited a new collection called Colonial Horrors, Sleepy Hollow and Beyond. Some of the stories are well-known, others a bit more obscure, and Graham, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. These stories are either set in the colonial era or written during the time before American independence. Uh, What made that time period scary? I think because it was uh, a new world, uh, the Puritans had a a level of religious paranoia uh, and they felt that uh, this new world, because it was a a pagan heathen country, was therefore ruled by the devil and uh, who sought to trip them up at every turn to prevent the, uh, the spread of Christianity and righteousness in the land. Wow. So they saw themselves in a way as... Uh, colonists not just of a place of land, but uh, of uh, colonists who are getting rid of the devil, who are purifying the world. Yes, indeed. Yes, they saw themselves as uh, driving out the devil from uh, the lands that he formerly ruled. And that, I suppose, makes a great backdrop for horror stories, for ghost stories. What are some of their perceptions of the world around them that show up in, in the stories that you've edited? Well, um, I think when I started to compile this collection, it dawned on me that uh, you have the European Gothic with its its crumbling castles and ruined monasteries. Yeah. Uh, the American Gothic, which was developing at the same time, 
uh, took the isolated and inward-looking Puritan towns with their stifling religion and uh, neighbor accusing neighbor. Uh, added to that, the dark and mysterious woods outside, haunted by quote pagan savages unquote, and all sorts of uh, other monsters. Um, so it, it uh, essentially became the uh, the native soil of uh, the American horror literature as it developed in its earliest days. You talk about neighbor uh, reporting on neighbor. I, I think, of course, of the witch hunts and the witch trials. That's right. Um, and uh, even today we have uh, references back to the, the Salem witches or the colonial period in general appearing in horror stories in on the page, stage and screen. And it's almost now uh, a badge, a certificate of authenticity. If you refer to the, uh, the colonial period, you know that you're dealing with a, a, a bona fide American horror story. This new collection features stories from Edgar Allan Poe, Nathaniel Hawthorne. The best known, I think, though, is The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving. You call it America's most iconic ghost story. Why? Because it's the story that everyone knows. When you think of, uh, when you see the words colonial horror, that's the story that comes to mind. Uh, Whether you grew up with the animated version narrated by Bing Crosby, with the Johnny Depp movie, with the recent TV series, it all comes back to that. And that was my point of entry. Why don't we hear from The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, but set the scene for us first. Ichabod Crane is riding his horse gunpowder through a swamp. That's right. Uh, He's newly arrived in Sleepy Hollow as the schoolmaster. He's a bit of an outsider and a less heroic figure, I must say, than his screen counterparts. But um, having spent an evening at uh, the home of the well-to-do farmer uh, Van Tassel and developed a fondness for his daughter Katrina, uh, he ran afoul of Bram Bones, the local big man on campus, who uh, got his revenge by filling Ichabod's mind with ghost stories that had been playing on his imagination as he rode home through the darkness on a borrowed horse. All right, here we go. He appeared to be a horseman of large dimensions and mounted on a black horse of powerful frame. He made no offer of molestation or sociability, but kept aloof on one side of the road, jogging along on the blind side of old gunpowder, who had now got over his fright and waywardness. Ichabod, who had no relish for this strange midnight companion, and bethought himself of the adventure of Brom Bones with the galloping Hessian, now quickened his steed in hopes of leaving him behind. The stranger, however, quickened his horse to an equal pace. Ichabod pulled up and fell into a walk, thinking to lag behind. The other did the same. His heart began to sink within him. He endeavored to resume his psalm tune, but his parched tongue clove to the roof of his mouth, and he could not utter a stave. There was something in the moody and dogged silence of this pertinacious companion that was mysterious and appalling. It was soon fearfully accounted for. On mounting a rising ground, which brought the figure of his fellow traveler in relief against the sky, gigantic in height and muffled in a cloak, Ichabod was horror-struck on perceiving that he was headless. But his horror was still more increased on observing that the head, which should have been rested on his shoulders, was carried before him on the pommel of the saddle. His terror rose to desperation. 
He rained a shower of kicks and blows upon gunpowder, hoping by a sudden movement to give his companion the slip. But the specter started full jump with him. Away, then, they dashed through thick and thin, stones flying and sparks flashing at every bound. Ichabod's flimsy garments fluttered in the air as he stretched his long, lank body away over his horse's head in the eagerness of his flight. The Headless Horseman. You say that Sleepy Hollow was well-liked by the British, which I, I gather was uncommon at the time. Um, almost unknown. Um, the British, of course... Uh, were very imperialist at the time and found it quite inconceivable that a colony, a former colony, uh, could produce anything uh, worthy of note in the uh, <laughs> realm of arts and culture. Um, uh, and yet they took a shining to Sleepy Hollow. They did. They did. And ironically, Irving was actually living in Britain when he wrote it. You also included a poem in your collection, Mall Pitcher by mm -hmm. John Greenleaf Whittier, which we're also going to hear. And that's the name of an actual woman, Mall Pitcher. She was known to be a clairvoyant and fortune teller from Massachusetts. And yet the poem, which was, I think, written years after her death, is really about a witch. That's right. Um, in a way, Whittier appropriated the name and uh, just sort of grafted it onto uh, his idea of a, a New England witch. Uh, I don't know if he uh, lacked in his research or if he just decided that the name was sort of uh, good marketing. Well, and witches were obviously in the zeitgeist at that point, I'm guessing. Uh, very much so, yes. The uh, the memory of Salem was still comparatively fresh and uh, it was just a, a rattling good subject for a poem. Well, why don't we hear a reading from the poem Mall Pitcher. We find this witch on a cold night near the shore where she lives and uh, this witch can sense a visitor is on her way when a young woman arrives to have her palm read. Out spoke the witch. I know full well why thou hast sought my humble cot. Come sit thee down. The tale I tell may not be soon forgot. She threw her pale blue cloak aside and stirred the whitening embers up. And long and curiously, she eyed the figures of her mystic cup. And lo, she muttered while the light gave to her lips a ghastlier white, and her sunk eyes, unearthly glaring, seemed like the taper's latest flaring. Dark hair, eyes black, a goodly form, a maiden weeping, wild dark sea, a tall ship tossing in the storm, a black wreck floating. Where is he? Give me the hand. How soft and warm and fair its tapering fingers seem. And who that sees it now would dream that winter's snow would seem less chill ere long than these soft fingers will? A lovely palm, how delicate its veined and wandering lines are drawn. Yet each are prophets of thy fate. Ha! This is sure a fearful one. That sudden cross, that blank beneath, what may these evil signs betoken? Passion and sorrow, fear and death, a human spirit crushed and broken. Oh, thine hath been a pleasant dream, but darker still shall its waking seem. Something between a sigh and a groan burst from the listener's panting heart. How was her cherished secret known to that dark woman's art? An excerpt of Mall Pitcher by John Greenleaf Whittier. It is part of a new collection edited by Graham Davis. 
a Colorado author and editor in this case. Colonial Horrors is his new book, Sleepy Hollow and Beyond. Uh, Why did you want to put this collection of colonial horrors together? Well, uh, working on a a separate project, I had occasion to... uh research some of the uh, the primary sources for uh, horror set in the colonial era. And the more I read, the more interested I became. It just sucked me in. And I began to realize, A, how much there was of it. B, how uh, iconic it is as a setting for American horror literature from the very earliest times to the present day. Um, and C, how many good authors have been forgotten, have fallen into obscurity, and uh, also authors writing outside their accustomed genre in the horror in the colonial period, like um, uh, the the author of The Last of the Mohicans wrote a horror story, which is in this collection, for example. Oh, wow. Well, thank you for sharing some of it with us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That's Graham Davis. His new book is Colonial Horrors, and it is a collection that he calls Sleepy Hollow and Beyond. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.